Today we're going to be finishing off our series this whole month called Gather, Grow, and Go. Gather, Grow, and Go. Last month we did a whole series on building a church for generations because that is our vision as a church. We've decided that we not only want to build a church that will last into generations, but will be a church that will bring generations together. That's our vision. Vision is something that you see, but mission is something that you do. Let me say it again. Vision is something that you see is to come or where you're meant to go to, but mission is the thing that you are meant to do. And as a church, we decided we were going to go over our vision. We were going to go over our vision, our our mission as well. And this last month, we were meant to go over what our mission was as a church. And that is to gather, to grow, and to go. But the challenge that we had this whole month was there was a completely different thing that was set upon us. The racial tensions uh, ramped themselves up and we had difficulties in our culture. And we were going through quite a trial and a tribulation as a country. But I truly believe that it was a perfect opportunity for us to examine, is this what we're really about? Is this mission of gathering, growing, and going really what we are about? And where we took our whole mission from was actually from Scripture. And years ago, we had studied this and said, God, what is it that is the mission of the church? And we really took it from the book of Acts chapter 2. And actually, that's, that's uh, meant to be Acts chapter 8 on this last one here. But in Acts chapter 2, it says that the first church, they gathered together daily. They, they came together daily and they spent time with together, each other in fellowship. And they would learn things and they would, they, would, they would spend time together every day. And then it says that they would devote themselves to growing. They devoted themselves to the, to the teachings of the apostles, to prayer together, to breaking communion together. There was, a, there, was a, there was an effort to try and grow together and to grow in their knowledge and understanding of what God had called them to do. And of course, this is meant to be Acts chapter 8 verses 1. It says that they, they spread the gospel news. They took what they had been given and they went out and they told other people about Christ. This is how we have come up with our gather, grow and go. But I do certainly see that we need to examine for ourselves what does gather, grow and go mean for us now? What does it mean for us now in the year 2020? Well, I want to go through each one of these gather, grow, and go, and I really want to make an examination of it. And forgive me if this, is a, if, if this gets to a place where it may make you uncomfortable or it may be too much of a challenge or you may not even a, a, agree with me, but I want, to be, I want to be the type of church and the type of pastor that is in the position and the place to examine ourselves. Are we doing the things that God has called us to? So let's look at the first one and gather. It says in Acts chapter 2, verses 46 and verse 47, it says, Every day they continued to meet together. To meet together in the temple courts. And also later on it said that they met together in the homes of the believers. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts. What an attitude they had there praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. They made a commitment to be together. Being together is more important than we would ever have imagined or realized. 
now that we've had the lockdown and we've had the, the social distancing, we probably have much more of a desire and we put much more value on the fact that we can or should actually gather together, even with our social distancing. And notice this, it didn't say that they liked being together. It didn't say that they actually liked each other. It said they made a commitment to gather together every day. But now we're in a place in our culture and even in the church where people are becoming more offended with one another. And the first thing that happens when you become offended or upset with anybody is you tend to want to draw yourself and your love away from that person. It's the first and the easiest thing to do. We have evidence of this in the world where 50% of marriages end up in divorce. And guess what? The number for the church is the exact same number. We see it in our marriages and we see it in our friendships. We see it in churches where we get offended or upset with someone and then we draw ourselves and our love away from them. I even see Christians online disowning other friends. I had to unfriend them. I had to stop following what they were saying. You're starting to draw lines on what you feel about someone else. But should not we as Christians be running to the place of brokenness? Should we not be running into relationships where Christ is not king? Should we be not running to the places of brokenness in our culture and in our friendships instead of saying, I don't like what you're saying, so I'm no longer going to be friends with you. I'm not going to listen to anything you say. It doesn't sound like the heart of Christ. It doesn't sound like the ways of Christ. So why should we gather? Why gather at all if we're only going to be with people that we agree with? I want to suggest to you there are four things of why we gather. We gather so we can close the gaps between people. We are meant to gather if we are separated from each other, that we start to have this gap between our relationships with each other. And I believe that we're meant to be closing the gaps between people. You see, I believe that the world likes to draw lines. It likes to force people on the left and on the right. You're either for me or you're against me. I hear people saying, if you're not doing the things that I think you should be doing, if you're not saying this, then you are a part of the problem. Guess how many people I know that don't say anything, but they do something about the problems in the world. How many times I've even said, I've seen people are saying, if you don't agree with me, then I am against you. Jesus came to the world to close the gaps between people. Even before anyone decided to agree with them. Look at this in Romans 5a. But God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, that while we were against God, that whilst we were not in communion, not in agreement with Him, whilst that we were doing things against everything that God had told us to do, whilst we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't blur the line. He didn't draw a line. He crossed over the line. He closed the gap between us. And I believe that's the calling of the church. It's the calling of the, rec of the ministry of reconciliation. Not to be voicing and telling other people how bad and how terrible they are, but rather finding a way to close the gap, to come closer to people who need Christ. And today, I want to talk about four gaps that I believe that the church should be on the forefront of. And maybe you can think of other gaps that are out there, but I'm suggesting four gaps, major gaps that the church should be on the forefront of, of closing. And the first one is this. It's the sexist gap. 
the sexism gap. You know that in a church, the average amount of male-to-women ratio in the church is up to 75% women go to church and only 25% of the, of, the, the, of the makeup of the church is actually men. And yet, there are only 10% of women who actually stand on a stage to preach the Word of God, is what statistics tell us. Wow. Oftentimes when I'm meeting with other pastors in other churches, I'll ask them, how often do you have women on your stage? Even if it's not pastors, it's a congregant, I'll say, how often do you see a woman speaking on the stage? Most of them say very rarely. Now I get it. There are many churches who actually have a theology where they don't believe that women have the blessing of God or have the permission or the right to actually teach men. Maybe some of you believe that. Maybe you've grown up with that. They actually call it complementarianism. And I'm not here to try and argue against them. I'm not about to try and tear down what they believe. My question is, how does this end up treating women? How do we end up treating women? The world has been making an amazing effort to try and close this gap. And I think the church has not been catching up with this. Even during civil rights, I've been studying a lot about civil rights recently. And even during the civil rights, there was a writer called Ella Baker who said that extreme sexism was rife amongst the civil rights leaders themselves. And the civil rights came from the church. The church. Wow. It's one of the things that we've been working hard as a church to do is to figure out how to promote women. You'll notice that half of our teaching staff are pastors who are pastors are women as well. We have this amazing ministry called The Lovely Project where we are trying to push into schools in order to try and capture young girls to try and bring them their voice, their valor, and their value. And it's called The Lovely Project. But this is not about equality of outcome, that we have to have an exact amount of men and an exact amount of women. This is about the equality of opportunity as God has called us to in our callings. My angst, my angst is this, is that mostly men are called into ministry to become pastors. And it's expected that their wives have to serve alongside them, right? But guess what happens? It's the pastor who gets paid for the salary and the wife doesn't get paid a dime to do what she did. Tell me any other industry where this happens where you get two for one. How many of you are going to work and your wife is expected to come and work with you for nothing? I'm not here to say that we, I'm not trying to petition, hey, we now need to pay my wife for everything she does. I'm the one who gets paid the salary in the church. What I'm trying to do is examine us as a church. You could say, well, it's her choice. She doesn't actually have to serve in the church. Yes, I guess it is her choice. She could stop. But let me tell you, that the church would never work without the partnership of a family of husband and wife and children together serving together. That's the house of the Lord. My question is, where are we dishonoring those and we've just assumed it and expected it because that's what we've inherited from our forefathers? What is the answer then? It's a tough one. So I'm, going to share, I'm going to share a story with you that I haven't really told anyone publicly about this, but 
This is something that happened to my mother recently and I went through quite a difficult and a troubling time myself where I started to examine what happened here. A couple of years ago, the church that my mother and my father founded, my father died nearly 20 years ago and when he died, she took on a pension that was meant to be given to him. And the government came to the church that she had planted 40 years ago, over 40 years ago. She had planted this church, one of the first churches in in Scotland that was an evangelical charismatic church. It was away from the mainline denomination and it became probably the largest church in Scotland at the time. And a few years ago, the government came to the church and said, you can't pay this lady a pension anymore. And they said, why? And they said, because she was never an employee. So the church had to make a decision, well, well, how do we, how do we find a way to, to, to pay this woman the pension that is actually was given to her husband, but she's meant to inherit this, this pension. They said, well, if you decide to give any money or a pension to that woman, then we will take away your ability to be tax exempt as a church. The church decided that it could no longer function or operate anymore if it couldn't be tax exempt. So they went to my mother and said, we're sorry, we can't pay your pension anymore. You can imagine where I was as a son, where I was livid that the very church that she had planted, that she had spent her life working for without being paid a dime, all the resources that they had, all the influence that they had was because of the sacrifice that she made. And when an opportunity came for them to make a sacrifice, they, defi- they decided to let go of the widow and the orphan. Now here's the thing. This is not about money. Because my mother and I and my other two siblings, we, we agreed that mom, God has always looked after you. He is never going to stop looking after you. He will provide for you. We don't need to live in fear at all. But this is not an issue of money. This is about honoring. This is about finding a way to honor our woman who are our sisters, our mothers, our daughters amongst us, but we have lived in an archaic mode and method that have been inherited from our forefathers. We as a church need to be considering how to close the sexist gap. This is not about feminism. This is not about trying to get equality of outcome. This is about equality of opportunity as God has called our women to rise up, to live out what God has called them to do. Here's the second gap. We got four to go through. You think I'm intense this time? You should see where I'm going next. Let's talk about the generational gap. One of the great things I love about Northwest is one of our strengths is our youth. We've always had so many young people in our church. And Pastor Mark has is is always said that he is the youth pastor who never grew up. And we all agreed. Yeah, you never grew up. But that was his calling and that was his gifting and our strength was always the ability to capture young people. But guess what? Our limitation was that young people need old people. Humans tend to gather together with those that are like-minded, who are in the same age group, are in the same class, are in the same income background. We've even had old people that have come to our church and they see our performances. They see the huge productions we do at Christmas. They're like, we don't understand how you're doing this. How do you get so many young people? This is absolutely amazing. I say, this is just our ministry. And we would love you to come here as well. 
But many of them can't see themselves here at all because it's just too young for me. There isn't a place for me. I don't like the music. It's too loud. It's too much. It's too hipster. It's too, it's too this and it's too that. And I'm like, but we need you here. But then I even see how young people can overlook or mistreat old people as well. They don't take for, they take it for granted that old people have something to say. And when I'm saying old, I'm saying anyone over the age of 40, according to our church here, right? The young people don't take a time to go, you guys have wisdom. I need your mentoring. I need your time in here. I crave older people in our church. I crave you older people to stand up and say, I'm going to do something for young people rather than think that, that they just see it as, well, they don't need me because they haven't asked me. They don't know how to ask you. Young people, we need to know how to step up our game as well and say, let's get the wisdom from the older generation before it gets lost. Why would we want to repeat their mistakes? Let's learn from them. That's why our strategy was what we called our base, B-A-S-E, Business, Art, Social, and Education. We started that up about 10 years ago because we wanted to find a way to draw older people and younger people together to reflect the true kingdom of heaven, the body of Christ. Here's the third gap that I believe that we've got to close. The third gap we've got to close is what I call the class gap. The class gap. There are two problems that I've seen that we've encountered as a church and I have never known how to overcome it. The first one is this, that the wealthy don't know how to come to a church that is more in a, round, a, a run-down area. They would prefer to go to a church that looks lovely, that is very sanitized, that looks pretty, that is in a nicer area. I've literally heard people say this, my wealthy friends are not going to drive through Pine Hills to come to your church. That pains me as a person, as a pastor. Do I have to try and make a perfect church for someone to say, yes, I want to be there? Instead of people asking the question of God, where have you called me to? They've decided to say, where am I comfortable with? Are you uncomfortable in this church? I hope that you're uncomfortable in this church. I hope you never get to the place where you are only coming because you're comfortable here. I don't want you to be comfortable here. I want you to be called here. The other problem and challenge that I see is that when many of us who have come from no money, we get to the place where we become up and coming. And when you're up and coming, then you tend to move away from poorer areas. You take your money, you take your presence, you take your love, you take your service and you go to a nicer neighborhood and you forget about the one that you came from. Listen, Crystal and I, we lived in Lockhart for years, for 13 years. And we reached into that community over and over and over again. We lived there, we loved there, we served there. We even were a part of starting the first board of the community of Lockhart in order to try and bring people together. And let me tell you, it was hard. It was like pushing chain uphill. It was difficult bringing people together. A couple of years ago, we had the permission and the opportunity to go to a nicer neighborhood and it struck me, will I forget where I've come from? It's easy to create the gap between classes. The question is, as a church, are we making an effort to close the gap between classes? Are we reaching the poor? Are we reaching the rich? Are we reaching the, the, the privileged and the wealthy? Are we reaching those that are downtrodden? 
That's surely one of the things that the, the church should be closing the gap on. The last one is the one that we've been painfully feeling for the last month or two. And that is the race gap. How do we make church a place where all local races want to come to? Now I get it. People draw to their ethnic expressions and proclivities. They're, they're more likely to, to, to want to be around people who look like them, talk like them, and act like them. But in the church, we have become so segregated. And I'm not trying to force integration. No, we have to have an equal amount of black people and white people and brown people and purple people. That's not the goal here. The question is, is our door wide open for every person of color? Do they feel like the presence of Christ is here? Honestly, about last five, about five years ago, and I started doing something, I decided to start reaching out to other pastors because as I was examining this, I realized that I don't have a ton of pastor friends. And so I called them up. And I would say, hey, I would love to come and visit you. And I'm like, sure, okay, come and visit. And we'd have a chat. Hey, would you like to go out for some coffee? You'd like to go out for some lunch? And many of them did. But what I found was equally across the board, many of them resisted wanting to interact with me. Equally across the board, I'm talking about black, white, and brown. It was an issue of the heart. Now, what is, what is it that is the problem here? Is it just our laziness as pastors? Is it because we feel competition? Is it because we have distrust? Whatever it is, the church has to figure out how to close the gap. And if we can't do it as pastors, how are you going to do it in your community? I met with a Vietnamese pastor the other day at Langdon's took me out to dinner with, and it was awesome to listen to his story of how he escaped Vietnam, and he was a refugee, and he was on a boat for 10 days without water, and how in the middle of it, he cried out to God, and he says, God, if you save me, I will serve you for the rest of my life, and today, he's a pastor reaching out to his community. He has things to say. He has things that he knows about God that I don't know. The church has to close the gap. I heard a pastor called Matt Chandler who said recently that the civil rights came from the church. But guess what? The church has lost its power to talk about race. Why? Because it's not been on the forefront of talking about it. The world has been on the forefront of talking about it. And we have lost our power. And the harbinger who has been a sign to me of why we have lost our power is because we have lost our ability to even worship together. To want to come together on a Sunday morning with a passion and a desire to give everything that we have to the one who died for us. To have a desire to give everything from our mouths and our hearts. But we find it difficult to sing to a song. We find it difficult to, to be expressive in front of other people. We even find it difficult to turn up on time. You've heard me say it before, but I'm telling you, if we don't have a fear and a reverence from the presence of God that comes together when we come together, we are never going to see the power of God move amongst us. We are never going to be on the forefront of race, of gender, of sexes, of the class. We're never going to have that authority and that power like we should. So what do we do about this? The second part of our mission is to grow. In Acts 2.42, it says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. How do we grow to become a powerful body of Christ? Let me ask you this question. How much do you know about rocket science? 
How much? Your answer is probably either nothing or very little. Why don't you know much about rocket science? The, anger, the, the answer is, it's because you've never studied it. If it's true for rocket science, then it's true for all these gaps. It's true for racism. It's true for genderism. It's true for ageism. That we simply don't know and don't understand because we've not put the effort in. I've literally heard people say, I don't know what the black community want. What do they want? What do the rioters want? I've heard people even say, I don't know why people just don't get it. I'll tell you why you don't understand. Because you've never taken the time to understand it. Never taken the time to learn about it. We've held on to our positions rather than admit we've not put the work into it. If you're only reading material that you agree with or watching Facebook posts that you agree with, let me tell you, your growth is stunted. Your power is stunted. We have to start expanding ourselves as believers, as a body of Christ, because we're running out of time in this generation to make a mark of change and justice in our world before Christ calls us back. Which leads me to the last one. The last one is gather, it's grow, and it's go. And in Acts chapter 8, verses 1 and 4, it says this, On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church. So the church had been gathering together. They had such wonderful time together and their numbers had been growing. They've been learning about God. They've been learning about the spirit of God and the community. And they've just been growing and growing and growing. And then at one moment, God decides, you know what? Enough is enough. I told them to go into the world and to preach the good news. I'm going to bring them a persecution. And on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria, which is where Jesus had called them to. He said, go into all the world and preach the good news, first with Jerusalem, then secondly, Judea and Samaria, and then thirdly, the rest of the world. That's what he said. Then it continues on and it says, and those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. But they didn't go because they thought they should go. They went because they were persecuted to go. Did we have to wait until racial tensions broke out before we decided to study this? Did we have to wait for racial tensions to break out before we decided to talk with other people? to actually say, what do we have to do about this? Is this our persecution as a church right now? Is this the time that we're meant to be going through? Is this the time when we examine, are we more about the presentation of God than we are about the presence of God? Do you even have to wait until your wife is mad with you before you decide to make a change? Do you have to wait until something breaks before you decide to say, I need to do something? I'm encouraging you, people of God, go get another perspective. Go and serve where you've never been before. The reason why you don't see the troubles, you don't see what the problem is, is because you're not out there being a part of the problem. I don't mean adding to the problem. I mean learning about the problem. My brother-in-law, Jared Evans, said that he recently got a new car. And he got this new car and it was a lovely new car and he got in the car and he started driving around in this new car and he said, all I could see was how many other versions of this car was out there. And it's much like the issues that are in this world. You only see it when you get in the driver's seat. 
You only see it when you own it. When you say, this is not what I'm going to concern myself with. This is the vehicle I'm going to place myself in. This is what I'm going to own in my life right now. I'm going to own this problem. I'm going to own this challenge and this difficulty. When you start to own it, you start to see it. Can't see it because you don't own it. I am so encouraged and excited. Because I believe this is the opportunity for the church to find its power once again. The power of Christ amongst us. That when we speak the gospel of Jesus Christ, we literally see people respond. Not a sanitized gospel of Jesus Christ, but a real down and dirty gospel of Jesus Christ where we deal with the real issues where a person is faced with either truly accepting Christ or having to reject Christ. Because anyone that is neutral or in between or they're kind of on the fence about something, that's the worst place to be. It's hard to win a person when they are benign, when they've been anesthetized. But when they're in pain or when they're adamantly against the gospel of Christ, then I have my work cut out and clearly created for me. I'm hoping that this is a difficult topic for you. I'm hoping that this is a challenge. I'm hoping that this is the time when the church decides we're going to do something and we're going to do it different. And even if we lose every penny that we've got, even if we lose our influence, may it please the Father that I stood up and I said, I want to do something. I don't want to place my butt in a chair and just be preached to. I want to go out and be the sermon. I want to go out and do something in this world as Christ has called me to. Are you with me on this one? Because our church is not going to be the same from this point onwards. We're about to build a phenomenal building up of 429. I don't want to go there the same church we are now. I want to go there with power and authority to see the world change. Let's stand right With everything that is within you, I ask that you would pray and urgently reach into the presence of God right now. Father, we are asking that you would restore the resurrection power of Jesus Christ to our church. Restore it to us, O God. We ache. Lord, let us not go to sleep at night. Keep us awake at night. Lord, thinking about this stuff, angsting over this stuff, thinking constantly about what do we need to do? What do you want me to say? Where do you want me to go? Help me, Lord, to see the things that are out there. Help me, Lord, to be the answer, to run into the place of brokenness. Help us to be the hands and the feet of Christ to see this world change before your judgment, your final judgment comes to earth. Oh God, I pray you would fill us with your spirit from the bottom of our feet to the head, top of our head and overflowing. We ask this in your precious son's name. May God bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you. We love you guys. Pastor Dave.